0: Before we get started, I'm gonna take a selfie. I'm just kidding. Uh, I have in my possession here a photo of somebody who has a flat tire. So this is like the worst kind of winner that I'm about to announce. Uh, so if you drive a gray Honda Odyssey with the license plate, who knows their license plate? Whatever. It's DXP five seven six nine. You had it looked like two car seats in the back you're in luck. I had lots of practice with flat tires, and I'm not going anywhere today. But if this is you, have no fear. We'll make sure you get taken care of before you leave here today. But gray Honda Odyssey, I think it's a minivan. It looks like a minivan. So that's pretty much all of you. So... uh, For those of you who are new, we are so glad you're here. You haven't missed anything. I'm going to cover in 30 minutes what we did in nine weeks. And so for those of you who were here in the fall, I'm sorry we wasted your time. I can do all this in 30 minutes, but no, I'm kidding. Uh, What we're going to do today is we're going to look back at Exodus, and we're just going to get ourselves caught up to speed because it's been many, many moons since we gathered last, and so a review would be beneficial for all of us. If you remember in the fall, we said that Exodus is a book about a God who rescues, redeems, and reveals. He rescues his people, he redeems his people, and he reveals himself to his people. But if you remember, we also said this story is so much more than that. This is a story about a God who keeps his promises. I got like one laugh from Lucina. I know I can count on her. Uh, I just, you know, I think the stupidest things are so funny. I, I actually think that's funny. Um so, so, we, so really, it's a story about a God who keeps his promises. And so the big question is, why does that matter? Well, the truth is, is, we're all betting on a promise he gave us. God told us in the New Testament when he sent his son that his son is going to live a perfect life, die on the cross, and three days later in the resurrection, he will have paid for our sins. And so when you say, I believe, in essence, you were saying, I trust that someday you're going to fulfill this promise that if I believe in your son, that is enough for me to have eternal life and live with you forever. None of us have have had that experience fulfilled if we're still in this room. And so we are betting on a promise. And I think we're not fools for doing it because we get to see in Exodus and other places that this God that we're betting on keeps his promises. So what is the promise that we're talking about? Well, before Exodus was the book Genesis, which was in the beginning. And if you missed the, the couple years ago when we taught about it, it's a great resource if you wanna go back and listen. And in Genesis, God comes to a man named Abraham and he promises him land, seed, and blessing. Land, you will have the land of Cana. Seed, you will have offspring and blessing. Through your offspring, the people of this world will be blessed. And in that same passage in Genesis 15, he also says, but I need you to know this. Your people are gonna be enslaved for 400 years and after 400 years, I'm gonna go get them out. And so Exodus comes on the scene and we pick up where that story is left off. So Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has uh, Jacob, Jacob has Joseph, Joseph goes into Egypt, Joseph becomes a powerful man in Egypt, Joseph's family then suddenly comes into Egypt because of famine, and he's the number two guy in the land, only below Pharaoh, and he saves all of his family and they're in the land, and then Exodus opens up and says, here's the family of Jacob, we pick up the story right where we left off, but then in verse eight, it changes. And it says, and then a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph came into power. And if you're reading this like a narrative, suddenly you go, dun, dun, dun. Because what happens now in Exodus where we pick up is suddenly the Israelites who have been in the land for about 400 years are becoming prosperous. They're doing well for themselves. And anytime a minority group becomes prosperous in a land, the majority usually gets nervous and they usually enslave them. This is history. You can see this all over the world. And one of the things that they do is anytime you're you're trying to keep the minority down, what you do is you begin to dehumanize them. You see it in Nazi Germany. The Jews are not really people. Individuals with special needs are not worthy of the same dignity, honor, and respect that we give to humans. They're less than. We saw the same thing in a colonial America. We saw that white people felt like black people were not fully human. They're not even worth a full vote. It took us way too long to figure this out. And even today in America, there's a war on the individuals, the humans in our bodies, inside of women, that we say they're not really human. And so we see Pharaoh doing nothing new under the sun, as scripture tells us, and he goes and he tells the Hebrew midwives, I want you to start throwing all the boys in the water. Throw them in the Nile, let them drown. And our two heroines, Shipra and Pua, who have the two coolest names, if you remember, I challenged y'all to name your daughters that. Uh, as somebody who has a name that's weird, they will never get like those cool license plate. you know, when you go to Graceland and you, my sister Brittany's like, right here. And my brother Cody's like, right here. And I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> Elvis is number one fan, yeah. That's a true story. I'm not bitter. Yeah, so Shipra and Pua, they, they fear God. We learned this in lesson one. They say, we're not, we're not doing that. And so Pharaoh ratchets it up a little bit more. And he's like, okay, since you guys aren't doing it, I'm just gonna tell all the people, just start throwing the babies in the water. And Moses' mom, who's, who's more terrified of God than she is of Pharaoh, because anytime you believe in God, you don't have to fear your enemies because you've got God on your side. She says, no she keeps her baby. She puts him in a basket. Pharaoh's daughter of all people picks him out of the water. And suddenly the story picks up there. And what do we learn about lesson one? We learn that God's people are everywhere. Even in the midst of this tyrant who should be feared, God has his people who fear him more. And so when you're in the midst of the storm and you're not sure that there's anybody else around you who's following the Lord with you, look to the heavens and oftentimes he'll show you. We see a similar type situation later in scripture where Elijah thinks he's the only guy walking with the Lord and God comes to him, he says, no, 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 there's a remnant. God's people are always there. You may not be able to see them, but you can trust that he has his people in place and in time and we learn this in lesson one. We get to the end of lesson one and we see that this special baby, this baby that grew up in Pharaoh's household becomes a murderer and he flees. And so as those who are watching the narrative, suddenly lesson two rolls around and we're pretty deflated I mean, I was depressed all of the fall when we got to it. I was like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? Moses is a murderer. He's in the desert. I saw this in the Lion King. Timon and Pumbaa are going to come in. I watched way too many Disney movies growing up. But yeah, we get to lesson two, and what we see is that God uses even Moses. Moses this guy, this special baby that we met in lesson one, who was literally rescued out of the water. The God who rescues starts by rescuing this helpless baby out of the water and lets him be raised by of all people, the Pharaoh's daughter. And he grows up in this household. And so we're thinking, this is our big heroine. This is our guy. We're putting all of our money. This is the guy. And then in a moment he kills a man and then he flees to the desert and he goes from being the horse that's leading the race to our dark horse that nobody would bet on. And he's out in the desert. And we're thinking, God, if that was your plan, you've really messed up. God, you've picked the wrong guy. Because now Moses is a coward out in the desert and he's been disqualified for ministry. But what we learned in lesson two is that nothing's beyond God's redemption. That there is no story too far gone. God says, hey, I know you fleed. I know you killed a man. I know you feel unworthy. I know you think you can't speak. I know you're terrified. I know you have no skills. I know all of this and yet you're my guy. So we learn about a God who not only redeems entire people, but he redeems individuals. There's no story too far gone. So if you're sitting in here today going, God can't use me, you're wrong. In the best sort of way, you're wrong. But God can and he will use you. We get through lesson two and then we get to lessons three through five and we spend a good deal of time in the plagues. Um, and, And you may be asking yourself like, what is the deal with the plagues? We know that Moses is gonna come on back and he's gonna, ask, he's gonna ask Pharaoh to let his people go. So why doesn't Pharaoh just let the people go? Or why doesn't God just cause the Pharaoh to let the people go? We know God is mighty. We know that the hearts of kings are like water through the hands of God. We know that he, he moves people. We know that he can do anything. So why do we have to go through the plagues? Which is a valid question. And there's a couple of reasons. Um, one is they worshiped all the things that God took on in those plagues. They did. And so God says, you worship the Nile, blood. You worship frogs, kermit madness. You like those gnats? You can have as many as you'd like. And it goes on and on and on. They worship Ra. The mighty God Ra was the, the God of the sun. And so God comes in and he says, fine, then I'm gonna give you darkness, a darkness you can feel. Why does he do this? Two reasons. One, he needs the whole world to know that the gods of the Egyptians are nothing compared to our God. And two because he needs the Israelites who are going to soon follow him out of this land to know that he's greater than the gods that they've been worshiping. 400 years in the land, you can imagine they begin to adopt the customs of the Egyptians that they were with, and so they did. They began to worship the Egyptian gods, and God knows he's about to call them out of this place where they've been slaves, where they've worshiped the wrong gods, and he needs to show them, I'm better. It's his kindness that brought the plagues. We learned when we studied that, that if God were to do the same thing today, that he would also take down our idols. What, what is it that we idolize? Is it wealth? Is it our families? Is it beauty? Is it esteem? Is it What is that thing that means more to you or you worship more than God? Because when God takes it out of your hands, it's because he's kind, because anything worshiping other than God is going to lead you to destruction. Everything in this life is a lousy God compared to the one true God. And so he comes into Egypt, he says, I've got to do these plagues because I need them to understand that Ra bows before me. What is Ra? Nothing. Nothing. And so I love that he systematically takes down these things that they once held up as the supreme, as the thing that's worth following, the thing that's worth worshiping. And he says, none of this is worth following and worshiping. Soon you're going to follow me out of here and you need to know that all those things that you once relied on to get you through, I will give you. They are incapable of giving you those things. He's the son of God and raw, and he can't even give you the son. He's lousy. Then we continue on to the plague of all plagues in lesson six. If you remember, Elizabeth taught on the Passover, and one of the things that you should do when you're reading your Old Testament is like, where's Waldo? But instead of Waldo, you look for Jesus. And this is the passage that just scream, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So we talked about the Passover and so God's been ratcheting it up. Hey, these are the plagues. These are what you believe in. But for the most part, up until this moment, Pharaoh's probably been untouched. He he lives in in a lush palace life. And so although the people around him who lived in the fields or all those things, they were probably affected by it, Pharaoh probably was not as affected as much. And so God comes in and he says, now it's time for final judgment to be laid on Egypt. Now it's time for them to know for sure that I am the God. But he does something amazing and remarkable. He allows for the houses to be passed over, which is why we call it Passover, if they will sacrifice a lamb and spread the blood on the doorposts of their home. God made provision in his judgment for them to receive mercy and grace. And many of the Israelites, in fact, most do what God tells them to do. And so their sons were spared. But the Egyptians, who at this point, you can imagine, how hard of a heart do you have to have to ignore it at this point? I'm like one of those people that I'm like, let's just play the odds here. Like, I probably won't win the Powerball, but at least I have a chance. No, I'm kidding. I didn't buy a Powerball ticket. But I've seen all these plagues. I would hope that my heart would be such that I would be like, you know, it's probably not going to happen, but let's just spread some blood anyways. And remarkably, they, they don't. They don't. They've seen all of their gods systematically humbled before them, which just gives us a picture into how hard Pharaoh's heart had turned towards God. God is being just when he sends his Passover spirit over the land. And so we wake up in the morning and Pharaoh has lost his son. And so it's it's all fun and games when you're taking out my my God of the frogs or God of the Nile, but suddenly you took my son. My son. And so Pharaoh's had enough and he relinquishes and he says, You guys can go. And so this m- like magnificent moment happens where when God said, I promise that I will rescue my people is now starting to come to fruition. And it's amazing. We know that God says he's going to keep his promises. And so we get ready to march out in, in lesson seven. But true to Pharaoh, he then takes chase. This is the best movie. I, I don't know why they don't just make the movie true to form. Have, has anybody seen Argo? Yeah, did y'all not scream as they're going through the airport? And you know, like, you know, because you saw the news, like, you know that they get out, but I, my, my heart was, gu- 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 and it took everything in me not to be like, oh my gosh, just get on the plane. <laughs> I did the same thing when Seabiscuit rounded that corner. I was like, <laughs> this, this story is amazing. They think that they're going to walk out, and then suddenly the army says, okay, let's go get them. But there's a reason why they do this and we're going to see why God does this. But God takes them through the Red Sea, and the reason why God has them being chased by by the Egyptian army is because when they get to the other side of the Red Sea, he allows them to stop and look back and see the army get completely annihilated. Why does he do this? Well, because he's showing them what it looks like to truly be free, And the truth is, is in this moment, now that they're across the Red Sea, that even if they wanted to swim back or they built a raft or they did something, they got themselves back to Egypt, the entire Egyptian army, the entire Egyptian military prowess, everything that made Egyptians great is now gone. The people that once enslaved them are no more. So now they're truly free. When God said, I promised you freedom, he didn't mean like, we're just gonna do this operation in the middle of the night and maybe sneak you out. And so the rest of your life, you're looking over your shoulder, wondering if the Egyptians are gonna come for me. No, he takes them out. Why? Because that's what it means to be free. And God does that with our enemies, namely sin. So he comes to us and he says, I've set you free. And so even if the Israelites had gone back into Egypt, they would not have been able to be enslaved again because their slave masters are no more. They had been vanquished and God let them see that. And so for those of you in this room who have said that I believe in Christ as my Lord and Savior, you may go back and toil with your sins, but you are not under the yoke of slavery any longer. Your slave masters have been vanquished on that cross. And God, if you'll let them, will show you that just like he showed the Egyptians or the Israelites. That was lesson seven. And then lessons eight and nine are, are probably where we relate to the Israelites the most. Now they're free, and you got to be asking yourself, how do free people act? Well, they act like slaves until they understand that they're fully free. We finally get out of Egypt, and they've been enslaved for 400 years. Their conditions could not have been more harsh. A pharaoh was trying to kill their babies, and then they get into the wilderness, and they're with a God who says, I will be with you always. There's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And what do they do? Ah... Uh, could we get some more food? Maybe we could go back. Did you bring us out here so we could drown or drown? They wish they were drowning. We could thirst to death. Because oftentimes when God gives you freedom, you don't know what to do with it. I know, because as somebody who's been freed from the bondage of slavery and was welcomed in as a daughter of a king, it took me years to figure out I was free. And sometimes I still forget. Right? The truth is, is that there are times when even though God has paid for our freedom, we would much rather put ourselves under the shackles of sin and guilt and shame because we know those shackles. The unknown of freedom is sometimes so terrifying and all we have in that moment is God to cling to that we would rather go back to slavery because we know it. Any control people in the room? I, I think I've told you, that I like learned through region that I struggle with control. Do you ever... Like, how did I not know that before? I don't know. And, and what's funny is when I, like, told all my friends, like, I think I might have a control problem, they were like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, now we're going to see you at a men's because none of you told me. So all of you will be on my inventory. <laughs> yeah. And so you know what? I like to control. So sometimes I'd rather go to an area that I can control rather than walk step by step by his spirit and faith and faith that I can't always see. So I, I don't think I'm alone in that. But what I want to tell y'all is that freedom is always better than slavery. Always. And I know it's scary. I know it is. I want to imagine, it, you, you, I mentioned earlier colonial America, but when, when Abraham Lincoln set the slaves free, imagine you being told that you're free, but all you've known your whole life is slavery. That is terrifying. But slavery is, or freedom is always better than slavery. What I love about it is during this time, even though they're acting like spoiled brats, God time and time and time again still provides for them. Like a good father, he understands that they're not ready to act like they're they're children. They still think they're slaves. They still think they're under the slave master. And so he's a good, kind, patient father who says, I know you don't fully get it, and so even though you grumble and you complain, I'm gonna provide for you because I need you to trust that I'll provide for you. And even though you're lost, I will show you the way because I know you need to know the way. And that's good news for us because I act like that. I, I I at times tell God my plans, or I tell him I know best, or I tell him that, hey, you can have this part of my life, but if it's okay with you, I think I'll control this. And he's like, No. And then he gives me good gifts. And then I remember that I have a good, good father. And then it gives me the the faith to continue on with him. So if you're scared like me of freedom, don't be. Because you're walking with a good dad. After eight and nine, we got to the end of this semester and we just kind of dropped off and and, and took a break. And so you may be wondering, well, what's coming? Well, what's coming is that God's going to help them even more. What you're going to see in the next few weeks is now that they're, they're finally free and they're struggling a little bit to understand what it means to walk in freedom, God's going to give them the law and he's going to give them commands and he's going to continue to reveal himself to them so that they know what it means to walk with God. And while they have been given the blueprints and they are going to get the law, we have been given even more, his spirit. His spirit is inside of you if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so this semester, as we walk along, my hope for you all is to look at them and almost in some ways pity them that although they were given at the time, the greatest thing that they could have been given, the law, and it was a great tutor, it was a great instructor that we've been given more. We've been given more. And so for those of you who maybe are here today and you're like, I don't know what this more is, I would, I would encourage you mightily to find somebody in a green t-shirt and ask them about it. But if you have asked Jesus in your heart and you do follow him, then I would just ask you this semester as we continue to learn more about who God is and what he expects of us, that you would take great hum- comfort in knowing that his spirit is in you and will allow you to walk in the freedom that's been purchased for you. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you and we thank you that we have been able to come back and, uh, into a warm room and a safe environment. Uh, that we heard from the gifts of John and Jeremy and, and Hayden, and that we have the chance to study your word. God, through that, I pray that we would not just study your word as an academic exercise, but instead we would study it in a way that we may know you better. And through knowing you better, we would be made more and more into the image of your son. God, we love you. And it's in your son's name we bring all these requests to you. Amen.